Looking for compassionate true crime? This is Method and Madness, a true crime podcast with a purpose. Shedding light on injustice and advocating for change. Join me, Dawn, as I take you on a journey of immersive storytelling and pose questions to get you to think about the method of the mind, the madness that ensues. We're going deep into the evidence, examining lesser-known cases, all while focusing on the victims and the survivors. Dive in to Method and Madness, available wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Retreaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Retreaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I think I even threatened to chop off his dick if I remember correctly. And he said, do it. I don't care about my dick. It's little anyways. My biological name is Samantha Ray Haynes, and that's usually what I go by. My legal name is Brittany Blair. That's my adopted name. And I'm 33. I live in Corsicana, Texas, an hour south of Dallas. It's really nice. Pretty stoked right now in life. <laughs> Samantha Haynes has lived a wild existence. Her account is not one we come across often, and you'll understand what we mean by that soon enough. It's one hell of a story, so we'll dive right in and let Samantha fill you in herself, setting the scene from where it all began in her home state of New Mexico. I was born in Rio Doso, New Mexico, by David Haynes and Trish Fugate. They named me Samantha Ray Haynes. I stayed with them for about four months. May 26, Gaylin, my paternal, David Haynes's mother, she has a career in CYFD. Uh, the child youth and CPS out of New Mexico. She said to Trish that I would have a better life. And she thinks that she should sign a power of attorney, a six month power of attorney. From my biological standpoint, I disappeared. It's a little confusing right off the bat, which only sets the stage for the insane ride that is Samantha Haynes's life. When Sam was very young, she was born into an environment of drugs and poverty. Her mother Trish and birth father David were both addicted to methamphetamines. Her parents were selling illegal substances right out of the home when Samantha was just an infant. Therefore, her grandmother, who she refers to as Gay Lynn, stepped in. She had a Trish, the mother, sign a power of attorney over to a woman named Dallas Blair a 37-year-old high school teacher from Hollywood, California, who was looking to adopt. But the legitimacy of that adoption paperwork was questionable at best. I've gotten basically corroboration from both my grandmother, Gaylin Tivis, and my mother, Trish, saying that she was given an envelope, $500. Gaylin took me, drove me to El Paso, Texas. I got on a plane with a woman named Dallas Blair. She told Dallas, actually, you need this power of attorney so it's not kidnapping. According to Samantha, her birth mother, Trish, was too strung out to know what was going on with the adoption. 
Apparently, she was under the impression that the arrangement would only be temporary while she tried to get her life together. In reality, she wouldn't see her daughter again until roughly 20 years later. Gay Lynn, the grandmother, worked for the state with Child Protective Services. And while this was convenient, and she was certainly doing what she thought best for her granddaughter, according to Sam, it was illegal the way it all went down. Despite this clear oversight, there were signs of child abuse in the home with the birth parents. And given that fact, Galen undoubtedly made it a priority to get Sam out of the house by any means necessary. So my biological mom says that my kink in my neck could be a mixture of things. She said that my dad pushed her head through like the trailer wall, like her head was literally outside of the trailer, like through the bathroom, I guess. And I was in her arms. And so my head and neck might have gotten damaged that way. That's what my mother says. My dad says that he came home one day and I had bruises all over me. And Trish told him that I fell out of the crib. And he was like, uh, she's only three months old. <laughs> Obviously, this home was no place for a child. And according to a local drug user named Spike, who frequented her parents' home back in the day, Samantha had once been found inside of a dresser drawer when she was just a baby. Her parents neglected the child as she crawled around the drug-infested home. Allegedly, Samantha was often left unattended while they smoked meth. He, he said that he remembers me being in the house and it wasn't a safe environment. And actually, I think it was Spike that went to Gay Lynn, my dad's mom, and said, hey, you should probably uh, get this baby now. And so, legitimate paperwork or not, getting Sam out of that house very well might have saved her life. But when her new mother, Dallas Blair, met her and Galen at the airport with nothing but the clothes on her back, her new guardian was concerned, to say the least. She had said that she was really upset that I didn't come with anything. I didn't come with a diaper bag. I didn't come with uh, anything except for literally a piece of paper, a power of attorney. And with that, baby Samantha was off, picked up and on the next flight to LAX with her new mother, Dallas, ready to start their new life together in California. Samantha's name was immediately changed to Brittany Blair, and her records were effectively sealed. All ties to her old life were cut off from the time she was just six months old. She wouldn't even come to know that she was adopted, or who her birth parents actually were, or the fact that she had an older biological brother until much later in life. Samantha, now Brittany, struggled from very early on, trying to find a sense of belonging and purpose. Dallas Blair played the role of mom suitably. Professionally, she did well and had even worked her way up to becoming the dean of Hollywood High School. The home life environment was stable from a financial standpoint, but the pair lacked a genuine connection, and Brittany wasn't sure why. According to her, Dallas never even truly wanted children. Another thing this little girl wouldn't learn until she was much older. The adoption was allegedly something Dallas's immediate family pressured her into. As young Brittany grew up, she began feeling like she was more of a burden than she was loved, and she didn't feel like anyone's child. Dallas was dating a black man at the time, and by all accounts, this made matters much more difficult as Dallas's family didn't approve of her boyfriend and basically disowned her because of his race. 
As one could imagine, this created even more hostility in their relationship. They were always fighting. They were always fighting. One time they locked me in the bathroom and I slept on the tile in the bathroom all night one night because they were screaming and fighting. They glass everywhere. We had Marilyn Monroe glass picture frames everywhere and, and they were just all gone when I woke up and finally they let me out of the bathroom. To preface, this was during the 1990s in Los Angeles at the height of the Rodney King riots. Racial tensions were at an all-time high in the United States. Samantha remembers people stopping to ask her if she was okay when out in public with her adopted mother's boyfriend as a child, implying that the black man who was supervising her had perhaps kidnapped her, or that she was in some sort of danger. Going into Walmart, going into any store, going into a restaurant, like, yeah, walking to a car, me and him alone, is that your dad? Not only was it annoying as fuck, it was the constant reminder that I didn't belong there. And everybody looked at us like we didn't belong together. Not only did I, I already feel that, but everybody else around us was telling us that too. This was only one of the many issues this family faced. Dallas and her boyfriend had tried to have children of their own, but Dallas sadly miscarried. They were devastated as any young parents would be. Meanwhile, Brittany was forming her earliest memories of feeling inadequate, constantly caught in the crossfire of Dallas and her boyfriend fighting. This environment only compounded the societal struggles of maintaining an interracial relationship back then and the altercations only continued to worsen. As if things couldn't get any more stressful for this disjointed family, Dallas would eventually be diagnosed with cancer in her early 40s when Samantha was just five years old. Her romantic relationship was falling apart, and things in the home were more tumultuous than ever. As a result, Brittany began to act out. Dallas would threaten her when she misbehaved, saying that she was going to return her to Child Protective Services, claiming that no one would ever want her. This treatment surely only solidified her feelings of alienation. She said that she never received therapy as a juvenile, but instead was diagnosed with a myriad of behavioral issues by a pediatrician. I mean, I didn't act like her. So anything I did was wild and I was a problem. And she was saving me. She was saving me from a bad home. I was diagnosed with RAD, reactive attachment disorder, really young, but it kind of puts the blame on the child. Like, it's my fault that the people who adopted me can't connect with me, right? Oh, you're never going to connect with us because you're adopted. Like, it was my fault. She was also diagnosed with ODD, or oppositional defiant disorder, because she was uncooperative. She was continually told that she was wrong or that something was wrong with her. Clearly, Samantha, or Brittany Blair as she was known at the time, needed help. And as she grew older, she became even more self-aware. Aware that she still lacked a sense of purpose and a sense of self. And that she had no idea who she was. By the time she approached her teens, naturally she rebelled and her behavior quickly spiraled out of the control of her mother, Dallas, or any adult figures at school. So I moved around from school to school. They put me in a psych ward in Reseda. After I stole a bottle of alcohol and they put me in a psych ward, I AWOLed on the fifth day. 
So that was the first time I slept on the streets. This episode is proudly brought to you by Squarespace. All right, look, if you're a small business owner or a content creator, you need a beautiful, responsive, and engaging website. And that's why I've been using Squarespace for several years, including to build InvisibleChoir.com. Best part is Squarespace is an all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business. They've also got several amazing product functions built right in. So you don't need a web designer to build them or turn them on. Right now, we're using Squarespace's member areas function to completely revamp our premium content experience. It basically creates gated content, so you can sell access to videos, online courses, newsletters, or even podcasts. They've also got a pro-level video studio tool that helps you create and share engaging videos to your audience seamlessly. We also use the analytic tool because if you know where your audience is going on your website, you can build those areas out and engage them even more. So head on over to squarespace.com slash choir for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code choir, that's C-H-O-I-R, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Rocket Money. Here's a question for you. Do you know how much your subscriptions actually cost? Most Americans think they spend about $80 a month when the actual total is closer to $200. If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Rocket Money makes canceling your unwanted subscriptions as easy as clicking a button. Literally, identify the ones you no longer want and click cancel. I just signed up recently and discovered, unbelievably, I have 14 active subscriptions, six of which I completely forgot about after the free trial. And if you're curious, that's $608.40 per year I just saved using Rocket Money. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Rocketmoney.com slash invisible. By the time I was 13, I had left. I left. Barely even a teenager, Brittany ran away. She was on the mean streets of Los Angeles, where she met a crew of crust punks. Some were self-proclaimed perpetual travelers. Others were local runaways like herself. But of all places, this is where Brittany finally felt a human connection. She told us how she and her new friends made a do with no money and how they cooked stolen foods on the grates of repurposed shopping carts. We would flip it over and use the, you know, the sides, just use it as a grill. She found camaraderie among her new homeless companions, something she'd been yearning for all along. Her peers on the street were much older than Brittany, as she was still just a kid. Anytime the cops would pick her up, she would just run away again and was right back out on the streets within just a few days. They didn't know how young I was. Um, and I was always on the run because, you know, you can't be 15 and, you know, run away. So they were always looking for me to put me in some freaking place. And I knew that. Brittany lived this way for about the next two years. But eventually, she was picked up for the last time, 
and they weren't just carting her off to a psychiatric hospital or for a night in jail. Instead, according to her own recollection, she was heading to a place far worse this time around. They tackled me. Five cops tackled me. They arrested me, put me in Santa Clarita, like a little jail cell, and uh, they took me to Provo Canyon School. You may have actually heard of Provo Canyon School. It's located in Provo, Utah, and is infamous for allegations of child abuse dating back to its inception in the 1970s. It currently has a 1.1 review star rating on Google, which is presumably as low as it gets. Even celebrities such as Paris Hilton and Kat Von D have attributed their PTSD to the traumatic experiences they endured while enrolled at the school. According to Brittany, life here was 10 times more horrible than any day spent sleeping outside on the streets or by a Los Angeles sewer drain. 2004 until 2007, I went to Provo Canyon School. Within the first week, they shaved my head completely bald, like bicked it bald. They locked us in cells, brick cells that were really high ceilings, like a metal door with a tiny... uh, little peephole that they would open, you know, and close. And that was called observation cells. It was like a like a tunnel, brick tunnel kind of thing throughout the building. It was a two-story building. That was all the girls got. And I guess they gave pamphlets to all the parents and they gave them pamphlets of the boys' campus that had an indoor swimming pool, had a rock wall, like all of this really cool stuff. And they're like, this is Provo. And that wasn't that campus. Like, they were literally sending them pictures of not the campus they went to. She told us that most patients enrolled at this, quote, reform school were only there for a few months tops. But she was there for a total of three years. And in that time, she has revealed some of the most revealing and shocking stories we've even come across in regards to abuse, specifically at Provo Canyon School. Something's going on with my eating habits. So sometimes I don't eat. I was 140 pounds. And when I would skip meals, they would stick a tube down my nose and go all the way down my throat. And it would hit like the bottom of my stomach and they would put boost, like those little shaky boosts. And if you're good, you get to pick out what flavor. So, you know, we got to fight for the chocolate or the vanilla. They only tube fed me and a few other girls at the time. Brittany was of a healthy weight for her age and height. And it doesn't even sound like there was any logical reason to be tube-feeding these girls' protein shakes, at least from what she's described to us. Even though this was nearly 20 years ago, it's clear the effects of having been institutionalized at a place like this implicitly changed her, and the long-lasting effects impact her negatively to this very day. We really needed help. We really needed good attention. We really needed good staff. That at, that at least half-assed knew what they were doing. How could these people even know anything about child development yet? They're still babies. Allegedly, many of the workers or caretakers at Provo Canyon School were fresh out of high school themselves, with absolutely no experience working in such a sensitive environment. The allegations of what went on here are worth looking into. The rabbit hole is endless, and what Brittany explained to us only seems to be the tip of the iceberg. But for the sake of her story, once she finally turned 18 and they could no longer legally hold her against her will, she took off again. Running was the only thing she'd ever known, but this time it wasn't back to the streets of L.A. 
and it wasn't back to Dallas's home either. According to Brittany, Dallas didn't want her anymore, as she rarely visited her while she was at Provo, and their relationship soon deteriorated completely as a result. Thankfully, Dallas would make a full recovery from the cancer, but their lives as mother and daughter were no longer, as they were now two paths completely diverged, never to connect again. As soon as Brittany got out of Provo, she went back to California. She was on her own and started working menial jobs, trying to scrape together some cash. Before long, she bought a home. A home on wheels, that is. So yeah, I got a van for $350, and then I just started living in the van. It was van life. It wasn't much, but it wasn't a tent, and it wasn't her adopted mother's house. And it sure as hell wasn't an isolation cell in some Utah prison advertised as a youth summer camp. By this point in her life, Sam had dug up her family history. Dallas had revealed at some point that her birth name was actually Samantha, and she told her that she was from New Mexico and that her grandmother, Gaylin, was how she'd arrived in her custody in the first place. She started to connect the dots and began tracking down her biological parents, a reconnection which soon became her new life's mission. And I'm pretty motivated to do something with myself. So I was like, how about this? I want to get closer to my biological family. It's really cheap to live out there. And it's cheap to live out there for a reason. Her sights were set on returning to the place she was born. She was headed back to New Mexico. It was at this moment she realized that she never truly was Brittany Blair. And so at the age of 18, she felt she could finally be Samantha. And so that's the name she chose to identify with moving forward. Samantha was starting to feel like an entirely new person, gaining some newfound independence. She was off the streets and working hard to get back to New Mexico with a new goal in mind. She felt good for the first time ever. And it was also around this time she met a new man named Aaron. The two became intimate and Samantha moved in with him and his father while she continued to save up money. Things were moving fast and Sam and her first serious partner soon began making plans for their future. I got serious with a man named Aaron Davis. We actually eventually got married. Aaron was on board with the plan to move to New Mexico. And when the time was right, that's exactly what they did. Once they got there, Samantha and Aaron even managed to buy their first home together. Bought a house for, it was $64,000 exactly with taxes. And I didn't need a down payment. It was first time buyers. You know, nobody wants to buy in New Mexico. So it was first time buyers. I didn't need to put a chunk of money down. The house wasn't pretty. It was kind of a dump actually, and not in the best neighborhood, but it was theirs. And it was a place to call home. According to Samantha, she provided the bank with pay stubs from her job washing girls' uniforms while institutionalized at Provo Canyon. Apparently, she'd been on their books her entire time there, which, according to the bank, equated to several consecutive years of job history. And I was like, okay, they're pay stubs for four years. And she's like, as long as you've been working for four years. And I was like, it's a little laundry job at an institution. She's like, great. The paychecks amounted to next to nothing. But surprisingly, Century 21 didn't ask any questions, and Samantha wasn't going to either. Surely chuckling to herself, thinking that Provo Canyon School was good for something after all, 
she and Aaron closed on the house in 2009. Unfortunately, they would soon realize that just because you own a home doesn't mean you're automatically entered into the fantasy life of stability, absent any other problems. And Samantha still had her demons. We partied all the time. We were getting drunk all the time. I mean, we had a decent relationship, but it was just... We were still kids, we were still partying. I worked at Subway, like we weren't being still very serious, but we did get married and we did have a house. Just 10 months after purchasing the home, things had already gone downhill quickly. Aaron began using heroin and they eventually broke up. Aaron would ultimately leave. And while living in the house by herself in New Mexico, Samantha began racking her brain of how she was going to pay for the mortgage. That's when she started going down the darkest path she'd ever known. My life started to fall pretty quickly, and I start shooting meth with my new boyfriend, and uh, things get pretty bad pretty quickly. But I kept the house, and Aaron went back to California with his family. I was never strung out on anything until this point. In some ways, Samantha had achieved something great. She'd gotten back to New Mexico and purchased a home like she had planned. She also managed to find and connect with her birth mother, Trish. Ironically, this was probably one of the biggest mistakes she would ever make, because her mother, Trish, was still addicted to meth after all these years. My biological mom, man, unfortunately, Trish, started coming over more, and me and her actually did meth together for one of the first times. Sam and her biological mother began using together frequently. She learned that her father was elsewhere, doing the exact same thing, and that nothing had changed. Samantha and her mother were reconnected, but in the worst codependent way imaginable. Quickly, Sam's home that she managed to purchase became the number one dope spot in town, a place where you could bring all of your friends and shoot up without any judgment or fear of getting caught. The seediest people would begin rolling through that house every single day, and Sam was too high herself to realize that she didn't know any of these people from a hole in the wall. She and her new boyfriend had forged a relationship based solely on sharing needles, and that's when Samantha told us about his strange infatuation with sticking her with the syringe. He got addicted to injecting me, and my veins, what he could never hit... Like, he would do his, and he would get all high, and, and, and he would start digging in my arm, and, and no, 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 nobody else can hit you. And it was really, like, it turned into some strange control thing, and he tweaked on it. Like, you know how, how people tweak on taking bicycles apart? He would tweak on injecting me. And I think maybe it was, like, a sexual satisfaction for him. Like, he was giving me this pleasure. Look. I'm giving you this mainline pleasure right into your bloodstream and it feels great. I'm giving you this rush. Somewhere along the line, two drug dealers moved in. Annette, a mentally ill older woman, and Gumby, a man who was even older in his mid-60s. These individuals began dealing methamphetamines out of Samantha's house with the arrangement of providing her with drugs and helping her to keep the lights on. This was a way to prevent the bank from foreclosing on the newly purchased yet already run-down property. In a matter of just six months, there had been several overdoses inside that home. People were hallucinating, thinking tiny men were crawling through the bathtub drain. All of Samantha's veins in her arms, legs, and toes were non-existent. 
It was to the point she had to find creative ways for her new boyfriend to inject her with the needle. So, and I have to flip upside down, put a thumb in my mouth and blow out my neck vein and hold it like that um, and hit. There's no question here that wherever things were headed, it was not going to be good. Even with the financial aid of her new roommates, Annette and Gumby, Samantha fell behind on the mortgage payments. She knew things would eventually come crashing down, but had no idea it would be to the extent in which it actually did. This episode is proudly sponsored by HelloFresh. Look, everyone knows how much our family loves HelloFresh. You get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. And you can skip the trips to the grocery store, which I'm a big fan of. And if, like me, you had some New Year's goals you promised yourself you'd stick to, HelloFresh is here to help you eat better by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes, taking the hassle out of preparing your family a healthy meal. One thing I love about HelloFresh is how this year they have easily adapted to our changing eating habits. We wanted to be more conscious about our fitness and health. And with HelloFresh, we now order their fit and wholesome meal options. With other options like veggies or family-friendly, you'll always find something even the pickiest eaters will enjoy. So go to HelloFresh.com Invisible65 and use code Invisible65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Invisible65 and use code Invisible65 for 65% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I I wasn't going to have the house for very long. I was just kind of waiting until somebody came and kicked me out. I guess I kicked myself out. Two thousand ten. It's pretty bad. I mean, shadow people. I'm writing crazy shit on the walls, hanging stuff from the ceiling. I was dumpster diving. Like that's how I was. I was out of it. Really, just losing my mind, losing touch with reality, and on the verge of losing her house after just one year as a homeowner. The dynamic within those melting walls was only getting more bizarre as well. The two roommates, Gumby and Annette, began hinting toward their meth suppliers that Samantha herself was for sale. They tried to basically sell me off to a few dope dealers that they were getting drugs from. It was pretty obvious because one guy literally came out and said, hey, um, they wanted an ounce for you. And I was like, what? He's like, these people, uh, you know, I've been selling to them for a long time. Kind of was a little worried. He was like, are you okay here. Samantha was an addict, but she was never a sex worker or prostitute. If their crystal meth supplier was concerned for her safety, she was obviously in danger. At first, she didn't think much of it. She was high out of her mind after all. But after Annette and Gumby tried to kick Samantha out of her own home, that's when she knew these two had to go. And they're like, hey, why don't you go stay with this guy and, 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 You know, I was like, why? This is my house. A few days after Christmas, an argument broke out. Samantha confronted her roommates and told Annette and Gumby to pack their things. By this point, Samantha had real reason to believe there was an imminent threat, aside from the paranoid effects that came along with staying up for days on end 
while shooting math. Her creepy roommates began packing their things but were dragging their feet. And before long, things had gotten so dire it would be no time at all before Samantha was facing potential homelessness once again. Net and Gumby are getting out. My water gets shut off. I was really frustrated. I couldn't even call the water department because it was late. They came and shut it off at like 5 o'clock. At this point in the story, allow us to introduce a man named Kelly Tiller, a 39-year-old meth addict who had been coming around to Sam's house for the past few months to purchase and inject his drugs. One day in January of 2011, when she was at her lowest point, this man, Kelly, offered to help Samantha, but she'd have to get high with him first. He goes, hey, do a bump with me. And I've got three five-gallon water like drums at my garage. Tiller struck Samantha as odd, but she was desperate. She needed all the help she could get, and a couple of jugs of water would certainly help out in such desperate times. So she agreed. The two were to shoot up together and then drive Kelly's truck a few miles to retrieve the water at his garage, and then Kelly would drop her and the water back off. He was supposed to work his job at the oil fields later that night, so no problem, right? Well, not exactly. Mixing up two shots, I watch him. You know, I know the dope's good. It just came out. Like, I know he's a little weirdo, but whatever. I think I'm safe. All right, let's do this. I was watching him. We had new needles. He did have one big one and one smaller. I flip over on the couch and I blow out my neck vein. It's it's too much. Something, it hits me. It's way too much. And uh, I'm looking and I'm trying to focus and... Sure enough, he's got the little rig. As an avid drug user, Samantha immediately knew that this feeling was unfamiliar. She'd just been shot up with entirely too much methamphetamines. She quickly lost control of her body and began blacking in and out of consciousness. The next thing she knew, she was in this man's truck headed to grab those supposed gallons of water. But somewhere along the drive... Kelly begins making aggressive sexual advances towards Samantha. I don't even remember the drive. He was pressuring me for sex and rubbing my leg. So we're driving and I don't know where this guy's from. And so we're out basically in the desert at this point. When they finally arrived at the man's house, Samantha eventually realized that the purpose of this trip was not some random act of kindness. And then I realized kind of what's going on. There is no water. No water. He tricked me out there. Kelly Tiller couldn't explain why there was no water, and Samantha became extremely paranoid. She'd been awake for several days on a drug bender and was now somewhere in the middle of the desert with a man she barely knew. Before she could demand to be taken back to her house in Carlsbad, Kelly's co-worker pulled up in the driveway. He'd completely forgotten he was being picked up and was supposed to go to work. Both high and out of their minds on drugs, Kelly told Samantha to take his truck. He said that she could drive herself home and that he'd come pick up his vehicle once he got off work. Samantha didn't have a driver's license and barely knew how to drive, but that didn't seem to matter. She leapt at the opportunity to get out of there, so she took the keys and left. She had no clue of where she was, but somehow managed to find her way back home. When she had arrived back at her house, Samantha walked into her living room to find another friend sitting on the couch. She began to explain to him what had just transpired. So I go, I drive back to my house, 
an old friend Ira's there. And I was like, dude, you are not gonna fucking believe what just happened to me. And I laid out the whole story and I was like, dude, I think he was trying to take me out to that garage and, and, and fucking rape me, dude. He lied to me about water. He gave me way too much drugs. Ira stopped Samantha mid-sentence. He began to explain to her that she just narrowly escaped a very dangerous situation. According to her friend, drugging young girls and taking advantage of them is something this man was allegedly well known for. That's Kelly Tiller. He, that's his MO. He drugs girls and takes them out in the middle of nowhere and, and does that. And I was like, holy shit. And I was like, hey, I have his truck. Samantha's paranoia quickly switched to anger. And in her drug-induced state, she had the bright idea of seeking revenge on this man. So she came up with a plan not to return his truck. Instead, she was going to steal it, drive back to California, and start a new life once again. This all sounded great in her head, but Samantha barely had enough money for food. There was no way she'd be able to get the truck all the way back to California. So instead, she resorted to Plan B. In order to get back at the man she thought was going to rape her, Samantha would hide his truck, storing it at a friend's garage who lived nearby. Samantha and her friend thought this was quite amusing, but when Kelly eventually came back to get his truck several hours later, and it was nowhere to be found, he didn't find the charade to be the least bit amusing. While Samantha was off hiding the truck, Kelly arrived at her house. He broke in through a back window and began trashing the place, smashing windows, bottles, and in a fit of rage, destroying whatever property he could get his hands on. Once Samantha returned, he was gone, but for the next few days, Kelly Tiller would show up on her front lawn every single morning, allegedly pacing in place back and forth, screaming that he wanted his truck back while holding on to a hammer. It was clear that somebody was going to eventually get hurt over the whole interaction, and so eventually, when things were seemingly about to get even more out of hand than they already were, Samantha and her friend decided that this guy had learned his lesson. We're like, all right, let's go get this dude's truck back for him. He's really mad, and it actually is kind of fucking scary, and um, I think he really is going to do something about it. Samantha sent a friend to retrieve the truck while her and Kelly Tiller waited back at her house. Meanwhile, the ex-roommates, Annette and Gumby, are still packing their belongings, over a week after they were both told to leave. You have to remember that all of these people are extremely high on drugs, including the friend who was supposed to go get the truck. And one issue that occurs with folks who partake in crystal meth is that they become overly fixated on whatever task it is they begin doing. And in some instances, they cannot break away from it. Well, unfortunately, that is precisely what happened to Sam's friend on his journey to go get the truck. He'd apparently began playing video games when he got to the house where the stolen truck was being stored. He sat there playing Xbox for hours, stuck, they call it. When he finally answered one of Samantha's dozens of phone calls, he apologized. But then a new problem arose. The guy who owned the garage that was housing the truck apparently had lost the keys. That's the issue with the freaking keys, dude. We are relying on a bunch of people that don't even know what day it is and have been up for three days. An unfortunate series of events, no doubt, but this was no laughing matter. A whole lot of nothing was being achieved in this endeavor. Kelly Tiller was becoming more and more furious back at Samantha's house. 
He started hollering at her, demanding his truck more wildly now than ever before. With his patience wearing thin, his screams quickly evolved into threats of physical violence. I had a bat by my front door. That was the first thing I grabbed. He laughed at me and said, what the fuck are you going to do with that T-bat? I'm going to hit you in the head with this fucking T-bat. You get any closer? And he goes, I'll let you. I'll let you hit me with that T-bat. Why don't you hit me right here in the head? And I was like, all right. That's that's where I was going to go anyways. Knock your ass out. That's exactly what I... That's what I was thinking. That's All right, we're on the same page, homie. According to Samantha, Kelly Tiller continued advancing toward her. He allegedly provoked her, asking her to, quote, do something, at which point she did. I take a step back and I swing with all of my hundred pounds, you know, soaking wet. I hit him in the top of the head with that bat. The bat broke. The top of the bat flew off. It cracked all the way down. The bat was broken. That T-bat was broken and he did not budge. Samantha was confused. She didn't know if this man had some sort of abnormal strength or superhuman adrenaline due to the level of drugs in his system. But the baseball bat directly to his skull didn't seem to slow him down at all. It would be revealed much later that he actually had a metal plate in his head due to a previous motorcycle accident he was in while younger. Regardless, Kelly Tiller was still coming at her. And according to Samantha, in a complete state of inebriation and panic, she ran to the kitchen to grab the sharpest butcher knife she had. I think I even threatened to chop off his dick, if I remember correctly. And he said, do it. I don't care about my dick. It's little anyways, or something like that. So I had the knife in my hands, and he told me I wasn't even holding the knife right. By now, Samantha could literally taste Kelly Tiller's breath. He couldn't physically get any closer, standing there, now breathing directly on her face. Just then, tempers boiled over, and Kelly allegedly pushed Samantha which allegedly drove her past the point of no return. And he got in my face and he said, you get the first shot, do it. And I did it one time. I stabbed him one time. Samantha Haynes stabbed Kelly Tiller once to the heart with a 13-inch chef's knife there in her living room. Her recollection of these events is astonishing to say the least though I feel it appropriate for us to at least acknowledge the fact that she too was high and likely out of her mind on drugs. It went all the way through him. I could see that the knife went all the way through him. It went through four ribs, cut his heart completely in half, went all the way through the back rib cage as well. Samantha told us that in the current state she was in, she feared for her life and that she saw no other way out. She says it's hard to remember and that her recollection of events is spotty, but she spared no details in what she could recall during our exclusive interview. And I step back and I look at him and he grips it. He fucking ripped that thing out of his rib cage, threw the knife at me. And his last words were, you fucking bitch. And then he slumped over on the couch and I realized really quickly that he was dead. On January 6th, 2011, 39-year-old Kelly Tiller was pronounced dead at the scene just after 3.30 p.m. from a single sharp force stab wound to the chest. Samantha Haynes fled the scene immediately after killing him. According to her, she ran some three miles to her friend Mike's house. 
I go to Mike's. He doesn't believe me. He, We're in the car and I am begging him not to take me home. And he's like, okay, where do you want to go though? I said, I need to go to Roy's. We got to do something with this fucking dude's truck. He is dead now. Roy doesn't know that, that he has got a dead dude's truck in his garage. I'm like, Michael, can you... Dude, cut, wake up. Evidently, Michael wasn't getting it, though he did eventually drive Samantha to Roy's house where the truck was. When she arrived, she informed Roy of what had transpired. And according to the affidavit, Roy immediately tried to convince Sam to turn herself in. Authorities were soon knocking at his door just moments later. Roy cooperated and immediately informed law enforcement that Samantha was inside. With Roy's help, she emerged minutes later without further incident. She was then placed under arrest for suspicion of homicide in the death of Kelly Tiller. I know that you're kind of uncomfortable about it. I can see that. But I really need you to tell me what went on, okay? Samantha was interrogated for nearly three hours at around 1 a.m. the following morning. The detective plays the role of her friend and even gives a chuckle when casually leading into the events directly preceding the murder. So you hit him just once and the bat broke, I guess? The top, <laughs> the top broke off of him? Yeah, it was. Okay. It was a very sturdy weapon. And so I did go for stainless steel. I said, all right. Where was that at? Um, beginning was right there in the kitchen. And then I moved it onto a stool that was closer um, next to my snake tank. So it started off in the kitchen and you moved it at some point over by the snake tank? Mm-hmm. Samantha makes reference here to stainless steel in reference to retrieving the knife after the baseball bat had been rendered useless. She told detectives that Kelly Tiller pushed her before she stabbed him. However, she also said that she had gradually moved the knife throughout the home during the course of the day, strategically placing it in different spots. Detectives were trying to get her to come out and say that she had planned to use it well before any altercation ensued, and that this wasn't some spontaneous occurrence. When you finally committed to it, when you finally cut him, how did that come about? I just did it. It was just, see, this is where it went really fast. Okay. I think I even closed my eyes and I just kind of went for it. And I think, yeah, I used both hands. Both. But right when I did it, I screamed and I jumped back. And I jumped back like, bam! <laughs> like I was worried by the front door. I was like, ah, I gotta go. And he was after me because he, he pulled it out right afterwards. Ah, I was like, ah, all right, fuck. That was my one, yeah, that was my one chance. Uh, gotta go. Samantha speaks of the murder as if she's explaining a difficult level in a video game she'd just finished playing. She nonchalantly recalls how she had just killed a man. Clearly, she was not yet in the right state of mind. She was still high on meth during this interview and hadn't slept or eaten in days. Regardless, she willingly spoke with detectives and in doing so made her fair share of incriminating statements along the way. Samantha said that she was by the front door at the time she'd stabbed Kelly Tiller. Homicide detectives then asked her why she didn't just leave if she saw a way out. Samantha responded by stating that she was tired of leaving people behind at her house and she wasn't there. She didn't realize it then, but 21-year-old Samantha Haynes was not free to leave. 
I was charged by the police with first degree premeditated murder. I went to trial. It took two years to go to trial. I decided on a bench trial because a lot of the evidence wasn't going to be told to the jury. So the judge knew all the evidence because we had evidence hearings beforehand. The evidence that Samantha is talking about was the fact that the man she killed, Kelly Tiller, was in fact a registered sex offender. He was convicted of a crime involving a minor back in 1995. He was, as they say, a career criminal and was actually supposed to be sentenced just a week after he died. He was facing criminal charges for possession of a controlled substance and drug paraphernalia at the time. The district attorney filed a motion to suppress evidence in Samantha's pending murder trial regarding the man's previous sex crime conviction. She was subsequently held on a $500,000 cash bond, and her court-appointed defense attorney told Samantha to plead guilty to second-degree murder. He suggested a plea deal would be the safest bet, and that she'd be released after roughly 15 years. She declined this proposal, and in the end, it would be the judge and the judge alone who would seal her fate. The judge basically said, she said, this isn't a stand-your-ground state. New Mexico is not a stand-your-ground state. And she said, if it was, this would have been a stand-your-ground case. She said, I'm sorry, I have to do this to you, but you're getting voluntary manslaughter. I was found guilty. Yeah, that was the best she could do. I did six flat in prison and I did two on parole. So they owned me, you know, I I was still state-owned for eight years altogether. When Samantha Haynes got out of prison, she had no idea what her next step was going to be. She'd gone from one traumatic environment to the next her entire life. The only thing she'd ever known was chaos. From homelessness to addiction to six years now behind bars, she witnessed a woman die in prison during a fight. She told us she watched the woman hit her head. She apparently had an aneurysm and bled out right there in front of her. Samantha got into several fights herself while she was incarcerated. A life of drugs and crime was all she'd ever known. In a lot of ways, it's a miracle she's not currently serving out a life sentence. But perhaps the biggest miracle would come upon her release. When she was finally freed, an opportunity came about that essentially saved her life again. Her biological brother made it a point to track her down. You know, I'm really lucky. I'm I'm just going to say that. I'm really lucky. Um, my brothers helped me get through all of this. My brother just let me live here. He gave me this house. He gave me all this, gave me a vehicle. And he was like, dude, you're starting your fucking life for real this time. Samantha's brother may very well be the only true positive influence she's ever had. He came into her life when she needed him the most in her early 30s. She doesn't talk to any of her other immediate family members, not even her grandmother, Gay Lynn. According to her, her mother and father are still very much addicted to drugs. Her father is still in and out of the prison system to this day himself, and Samantha decided it was best to leave that life behind for good, taking only the name she was given at birth with her. Some things are better left unfound or in the past. For Samantha... This was the only way to try and move forward. She apologized to us at the end of our interview. We were confused as to why. She said she was sorry her story didn't involve more triumph or success. But the purpose of documenting her life was not for the intent of providing some neatly packaged happy ending. 
Our role here was simple, to articulate a very real and rather visceral human account of things that actually occurred in one person's life. Our goal in this case was to examine one woman's upbringing, the tumultuous environment in which she was raised, and to take a glance into the darkest corners of society that most of us are fortunate enough to never see or experience ourselves. We wanted to provide a perspective on how these situations and environments can and did lead to serious crimes. As for what's next for Samantha Haynes, well, she's not quite sure. She's now sober and is a new mother to a baby boy. I needed to feel a real connection, and once I had my child, it was just over. My whole life changed. My whole life, I needed to feel a real connection. I never had one. Never in a good home. I was... You see what I mean? And once I had my child, I was like, what? This is amazing. I have some sort of connection to somebody. Samantha Haynes now spends much of her time on TikTok, which is where we originally came across her story, of all places. She says that using her voice, spreading whatever positivity she can, is what she intends to do as a free woman moving forward. I am, I really am just advocating now. I get on TikTok, I advocate, especially for adoption reform. What happened to me was basically kidnapping. You need genetic mirrors. To, in order to develop properly, you need to have some sort of genetic mirror. And I had already had relinquishment trauma with, you know, the, the maternal separation. Um, I was kind of in fight or flight mode from that point on. And I didn't have any connection with my surroundings at that point either. But but I really think that if I educate people on how, how, how trauma perpetuates and it continues and you get stuck in a cycle, maybe we can stop that cycle. 